Welcome to the third series of Batonage, a podcast of stirring discussions about wine, hosted by food and wine writer Fiona Beckett and master of wine Liam Stevenson. As recording starts for this series, we find ourselves globally connected by the coronavirus, yet isolated in a way that none of us could have anticipated or experienced before. Through the use of new technology, we can nevertheless reach out to fascinating people around the world, hearing their stories from lockdown and talking through a host of subjects from grape growing, winemaking, marketing and inevitably food too. In the first episode, Liam and Fiona talk to Andrea Riccione of Scarpa Wines in Piedmont about the challenges of the last few months, how they fit into the region, their passion for Barbera, their respect for tradition and why their wine pairing menus only feature red wines. Okay, well, um, welcome back to another episode of Batonage, recorded in a slightly different way, in a slightly different circumstance. Um, we are recording this in the middle of April, so um, we are recording this in separate rooms, as you might expect, and not with our normal equipment. This is done over Zoom, which um, the world is getting used to, I know. Um, Fiona, only, you only live about six doors away from me, so we could probably almost shout to each other from here. But today we're luckily um, joined by um, Andrea Roccioni from Scarpa Winery in northern Italy in Piedmont. So I'm very much looking forward to this. Fiona, how are you? I am fine, as you know, being a neighbour just down the road. Uh, although we have been um, we have been socially distancing, so um, yeah, we've we've been observing all the rules. But it's quite fun to be able to actually talk like this, to do a podcast like this. It's um, Andrea. I'm very lucky to have um, Fiona as a neighbour because we've we've swapped the odd um, meal and the odd half bottle of wine, and it's been quite quite social. Very good. How are you, Andrea? Hello, hello, Liam. Hello, hello, Fiona. Well, uh, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, all good, all good over here. We've been home basically for now over four weeks, but it's um, but no, it's all good. Fortunately, things are going pretty well, and uh, we're pulling through. Okay, and um, obviously, we've watched Northern Italy be slightly ahead of us um, in terms of the um, uh, um, problems you've dealt with, or we're all dealing with right now. How? Um, how is life generally there? I mean, if, if from, from England, it looks like you've, you've obviously had a very tough time, but I mean, has it, do you feel like you're, you're coming through it now or is it still very much in the depths of it? We're actually, the very recent news have it that we are sort of on top of the hill and we are going towards, you know, the sliding slope of it. And that's a very good news, very relieving for us. Uh, yeah, we, everything started uh, the first days of March, first week of March approximately, and came out of the blue basically. It struck us a bit hard. We, we weren't expecting anything like that. And I must say that pe- people, well, as I say it in my, my opinion, have reacted quite well, uh, considering how social Italy is and the, the huge role so, um, social life plays in, in our daily life, much more in other European countries, we have been quite good in staying home and respecting the rules and uh, respecting the social distancing, which has allowed now uh, us now to start being out of the tunnel, or at least seeing the light at the end of it. We've grown into this habit. I'm, I'm part of those people, very lucky people, who have a chance to get access to open open uh, spaces because I get a chance to work sometimes in the vineyards that is allowed this is still allowed no, people, by, have, 
people can still work in the vineyards okay there is a, a list of activities that's been issued by by uh, the government that were allowed to keep working and others that unfortunately were asked to stop working uh, agricultural activity in general as for example farming and activities alongside many others um, have had the chance to keep working while respecting certain rules very specific rules for example we were not allowed to travel uh, by three or four people in the same car at the same time which is at the very beginning we were asked to be for, by two people at the same time in the same car one sitting in front and one sitting back and wearing masks but once you have respected these things like wearing gloves and masks you're allowed to keep working in the vineyards for example where social distancing isn't much of a trouble because over i don't know 25 actors four or five people can spread around quite easily so so yeah that's fine in terms of making wine um i mean i guess it's a time of year where it's not your busiest time of year in terms of production I know you've got things to do in the vineyard, but have you had to make compromises this year? Have you had to change anything in terms of how you make wine or have you made some changing blending dates? Have you made some commercial decisions that you are forced upon you because of this? I mean, I, I ask that because obviously I work a lot in New Zealand, which is they're living in the middle of their vintage right now and having to make lots of different decisions about how they operate. But has it affected how you work daily? That's a very good question. Uh, generally speaking, I would say yes, but what it comes to because although this is not the busiest time of a seller in terms of winemaking, it is a, a busy moment in the vineyards. But speaking of Scarpa specifically, um, we're, the way we are set, the way we work, it allows us not to sell, release our wines uh, every year um, with certain specific de de deadlines, even the very entry-level wines, for example, the one we are going to, to, to taste shortly, um, which is a basic Casa Barbera um, d'Asti, um, it's, it's not bound to, to be released on a certain time of the year. It can stay a few months, even a year, in, in cellar to age uh, in bottle. Because copper wines are made in a way that they really benefit from aging in bottle over a certain amount of time. So, having said that, uh, we are not pushed too too much by this situation into changing our plans or our, our pattern or into being forced to sell out a certain amount of bulk wine. So, if the situation is really going to improve as it appears, which is going to, we will probably just by making some commercial decision not too heavy uh, to get back on track without having given out, let's say, uh, wine in a different ways. It could have been bulk or it could have been insulation, uh, which is another option, but is certainly one of the very severe choices uh, to be made by a winemaker to, to take its, their wine from wine into distillery. Mm. What about delivery? I mean, have transport business, has transport been working okay? Could you get, can you get pallets in and out of the region okay? Yes, transportation has been, has been, well, it has played a very important role and it has worked quite well throughout. Uh, there were some dis disruption here and then, of course, because there, there were certain areas, so-called red areas with no access or very limited access to where deliveries were a problem. There were very specific areas um, and they lasted for a few days. Otherwise, 
shipping has worked quite well. We have turned into direct shipping, which means basically with our van, with our red, red van, we have been shipping right around uh, in this area. That's something we didn't, we weren't used to do in the past, honestly. But now times are changing, there were new things to do, and we were very happy to serve our, our um, clients uh, directly. Um, so in terms of the, the region, wh where exactly are you, for people who are perhaps not so familiar with the, um, with the Piemont region? Uh, how, so where geographically are you and what's the particular character of the, um, the part of the region you're in? Well, I'm speaking from my office in Nizza Monferrato. It's a tiny, well, yeah, a tiny village uh, near Asti. Mm -hmm. which is a proper city. Uh, in the southern part of the region, Piedmont, we are approximately 100 kilometers away from Turin, going southeast, and pretty much in the middle between Genova in uh, Liguria and Turin. The, um, the main feature of this area are certainly its hills. Uh, it is a uh, glorious hilly area of, uh, of northern Italy, and this is part of, of a, a, a larger UNESCO World Heritage Site, which is Lange Roeva Monferrato, which is a big area. And specifically, we are from the Monferrato part of it. Um, the name of this area is Alto Monferrato, it's because we are on, on those hills, in that part of hills, uh, slowly going towards the mountains, dividing us from Liguria and then uh, the seaside. So it is from us going south, the hill starts climbing up a bit, getting higher and higher, and where, where viticulture stops, there are basically woods kicking in, and then there's the, the seaside uh, on the back. So how far above sea level are you? Oh, excuse me. How, how far above, how high above sea level are you? Uh, Nizza Monferrato town specifically is 135 meters above sea level. But the vineyards, speaking of Scarpa vineyards, they range between 380 to 420 mm. meters above, above sea level, which is wide, which is high. Yeah. Yeah, it's on top of a big hill, a series of hills, basically, but it looks like one big one, uh, dividing Nizza Monferrato from another, another town called Aquiterme. Because Liam, Liam, you've been there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, both. I've been, I've spent quite a lot of time and I've got to know Scarpa actually relatively well over the last year or so. Um, but, and I didn't really know um, Piedmonte before that, um, apart from its wines. And uh, so a real simple question, because obviously I'm always struck by, as you say, I mean, it, first of all, it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. But also um, this abundance of small hills that seem to roll one after the other. And just hit, let's start with a real simple question. Are the best vineyards always facing the same way off a hill or is it, do they, do they go in different directions? I mean, that's a very general question. Well, they can, I think they go in different uh, direction because it, it depends on what kind of, of grapes you have on it. Uh, not all grapes probably want the same exposition. Uh, speaking, for example, of our most important grape, uh, which is Barbera, it definitely wants a south to southwest exposition. It really must uh, get the warmest sun possible, the warmest sun ever. Um, the grape is has a natural inclination to acidity. It can develop, as you well know, a, a, a huge amount of uh, acidity. 
into a good ripening position, regardless of how how warm it might be, is good. Yeah. Friends, if you are working with some whites or some red that's meant to yield some white whites, probably you would decide for something cooler in an eastward position. One of the things I notice, um, and I think maybe it's particularly with Nebbiolo, is going through the vineyards is how much foliage, how tall the, rows, the row height is compared with so many other vines. So I'm assuming Nebbiolo particularly takes an awful lot of light um, to ripen, and I'm, I'm assuming, because it seems to have an awful lot of green, you know, lo a lot of leaf for, for relatively small bunches of, of grapes. Well, yes, uh, ripening, especially for Nebbiolo, is very, very important because differently from um, Barbera, Nebbiolo has remarkable tannin, which needs, needs to be taken care of somehow, and that's basically the sun's job uh, to look after it. Yeah. Uh, so that's why ri ri ripening is very, very much important. Um, going back to the topic of exposition, which is Quite, quite important to mention now is that since the climate is changing and is, and is getting warmer and warmer, has been, has been doing so over the past 15 to 20 years probably, so starting from the year 2000, uh, what, what, what used to be a remarkable sight back in time, let's say in the 60s or 70s, uh, might not be as good as these days. Of course, the site is always the same and the plot is facing towards the same uh, direction, but it's the intensity and strength of the sun which is, which is different and has changed. And probably what used to yield soft, gentle, mellow wines might now be giving out something stronger, darker, a little bit more dense. Uh, so while planning a new, a new vineyard, a new plot, uh, not, not a few uh, winemakers might opt for for, for something at least new that would have not been thought of 30 years ago. So have you had to replant any vineyard um, uh, as a result of you know, the changing weather? But have you kind of like changed the orientation of any vineyards? Have you, have you done that? No, no, honestly, no, we haven't. Because uh, once you have uh, vineyards with a certain age, you really don't want to tamper with them. Mm -hmm working properly and but that's our case but it is, it is a very shared situation over here with uh, healthy good good uh, producing plants you really don't want to root them out and to start something new so you probably you, you just basically change the way you tend your vines throughout the year in a specific season for example when there's uh, pruning to be done when the, the great harvest uh, take place, you just change that. And you try to cope with the weather situation as much as possible by leaving more, more leaves on. For example, I'm thinking about what we do with our hookah grape, which is extremely sensitive. We try to keep as many leaves on the plant as possible to shade and uh, protect uh, the bunch, basically to keep it from from uh, getting burned. Uh, so which, which grape variety was that you were talking about? Okay. Okay. R-U-C-H-E with an accent. Yeah, no, that was an unfamiliar uh, variety to me. Tell me a bit about that. Well, it is a, it is a quite famous grape uh, here in Pigment. Actually, it, is, it originates 
um, from another area of Piedmont, so not ours. It comes from a tiny town northeast of Asti. The town is called Castagnole Monferrato. It is about 40 uh, kilometers away from, from here. Um, the grape is quite gorgeous because it is a semi-aromatic one and develops wine with a very, very high um, tendency to spices and spicy notes. Uh, great deep, deep purple color, color, but very lively and vibrant nose. It goes in white uh, pepper uh, and other kind of spices. The we decided to to uh, plant it for the first time in 1975 outside of the original area, and that's why still the wine that we are making now it is not a DOCG. Okay. Uh, the Castagnole Monferrato, but it's a Monferrato Rosso DOC, to which we have given a fantasy name of our own, which is which sounds quite quite similar. It sounds Rocher, but it's spelled differently in a French way. Um, and our let's say char uh, characteristic, so the scarper hand on it, is that we don't use any any wood retaging. So the wine is made and aged only in stainless steel tanks. Uh, it ages for a year in tank and six, seven months in bottle. The result of this is a, is a, is a, is a wine particularly loyal to its terroir, particularly faithful to the area it comes from. Um, it shares uh, the vineyard, our, our, our best plot, with uh, uh, the grapes we use for our top wine, Barbera d'Asti La Bogliona. Mm. Um, before we taste the first one, I'll tell you a little story. Um, when, the, when I was, the first time I ever went to Barolo, which must have been uh, 20 years ago, um, I know it was a long time ago because I was still running, um, and I went for a morning run, and it had snowed the night before, and I ran into this hill, and I remember I came across this plaque which um, had showed you where all the great vineyards of Barolo were on the hill that are facing me. And as I was standing there, the sun was coming over my back, and it started to melt the, the, the hill in front of me, which in the course of 10 minutes went from all white to turn the great, the great sites all started to go brown. You could draw, you could have taken a piece of paper and drawn the map that was in front of me. And then after 15 minutes, the kind of second tier started to go brown. And it was a really amazing example of, you know, those, um, especially vineyards, which are planted in slightly marginal areas, which I guess Piedmont certainly could claim to be at times. Um, that sometimes more sunshine, more warmth can define the greatness of a vineyard. And I was, I remember really being taken away by how I could have drawn that map that was on a brass plaque in front of me, myself with a piece of paper over 10 minutes. It was incredible. And I mean, that, um, that business of the, the fogs, you know, hanging heavily over the vineyard and then just suddenly, suddenly lifting and breaking up. I mean, it is a very dramatic um, area to look at, isn't it? It's, uh... Yeah, Fantastic. Should we taste wine? Yes, let's taste yeah. wine. What, yeah. should, what are we going to taste first? The Barbera? Yes. Barbera, yes. Okay. So this is, so um, Andrea, I've been to, this is from your main Barbera vineyard, is that right? Or, or not? That's from our, from our biggest vineyard, yes. It's about uh, four full hectares. And um, it, is, it is the one, that, the grape coming from this plot uh, called Casa Scarpa is the one that we use to make our entry-level uh, Barbera d'Asti. We have three of them all together. The, 
let's say that this is the entry level because it is uh, it is a, 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 a big part of a hill facing northeast and it is vinified in very traditional ways only a stainless steel tank with a maceration time for about 12 13 days um, it ages for a year in stainless steel tanks plus a few months in bottle um, the main goal, the, let's say that the leading threat behind this wine is acidity and freshness. It is meant uh, uh, to be a very, yeah, a very traditional Barberdasti coming from a clayish area where you get from the first, the very first sight uh, at the nose and uh, in the mouth, a clear nose of fresh red fruit and good vibrant acidity. The wine is meant absolutely to be enjoyed and consumed quite young. To our terms, youth is still in the first two to three years after, after the harvest. Uh, compared to general market rules, probably Scarpa uh, has a sort of a layover of a few years because we never come out with wines of the following winter so, um, of the of the previous year but we always let them age a little bit in our in, the, in our cellar in bottle but that's the way we like it basically so the Catascarpa is among all one of the very youngest wine we have on the market and it's immediacy and freshness are probably the two best points of this wine what um i mean i think it's really very vibrant for for i mean it's 2016 um and there's you know this there's a lovely sort of brightness to it and fruit intensity and the surprising thing was in fact i opened it on friday um just because i had something i wanted to try it with <laughs> and um uh, here we are on monday and it's held together beautifully i mean it, sometimes you open a bottle of wine and it's shot the next day this is this is sort of three days later and it's still beautifully fresh and beautifully still in balance. Well, this is something our winemaker Silvio has always been very cautious about and is very keen in making the statement clear. Um, the winemaking style here is very, uh, very easy, very simple, traditional, which means that the least we do so much, uh, the better. Um, especially there are two things that are not uh, overdone uh, and basically I'm talking about filtration and clar clarification. Uh, through, through these two processes uh, you can really stabilize uh, your wine of course but if you push them a bit too, too uh, far away or just uh, uh, too much you, you might risk ending up having a wine which has lost its its strength, its bones, its backbone. And as you just said, Fiona, it might, it might uh, result as void and empty after 24 hours uh, after, after opening. Um, by, by, just, by, by being very gentle, very soft on these two uh, analogical procedures, you just get a wine that can hold uh, together for at least a few days. Yeah. I, the, you know, the I, point I, 
I, I mean, I'm really enjoying it as well. And I, I, I totally agree with what both of you are saying. I think, I think um, there's a kind of, um, there's a lovely dryness to this wine, which I really like. And I think we probably live in a world of wines of lots of fruit, a lot, an increasing amount of residual sugar, even in red wines, both from the New Worlds and even places like the Rhone nowadays, um, Spain. Um, and, and yet here you seem to have this incredible sort of earthy dryness that I absolutely love. And, and there is some acidity there and a really nice tannic grit, but as you say, that kind of purity of fruit, it's earthy and spicy in a way that you'd expect the wine to almost lose its fruit, and yet it hasn't. It's still there right at the core. I think it's, it's not, um, I mean, I'm finding it not nearly as rustic as many um, Barberas are. It's, yeah. it, 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 it is, you know, it is earthy in the sense that, you know, you, you, can, you can tell sort of, where it's coming from, but it's not a, it's not a kind of, you know, slightly clunky rustic wine. It's quite a refined wine, um, even though you know it's youngish and um, you know it's not your greatest wine in the range. It's 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 got real class, I think. Well, when I say entry level wine, I'm, of course I mean it, but I mean it by Scarpa Stan standards. Uh, which are pretty much in line with the general standards of this area, which is a high and high high uh, uh, quality wine area. But I mean that even on this kind of wines, uh, harvest is of course uh, handmade. Everything is carried out by hand in person, and single grapes are picked and then collected in rather small plastic ba baskets up to tw 20 kilos in size, so not for, uh, for the bunches not to be pressed by the weight of other, of other uh, grapes on top. All these little pieces and, and, and elements just, you know, they play, play a role in keeping the grapes as good as possible. That's basically how you, how you get a good final product is by having extraordinary uh, raw, uh, materials, which in this case, just rape. You're saying um, that it's made in stainless steel. So presumably that wouldn't have always been the case, would it? Um, or, I mean, has it been made in stainless steel since it's been made? I mean, I'm just wondering how much uh, um, it's a traditional area, you're in relatively traditional winery, how much the winemaking techniques would have evolved? Well, this wine was actually the actually speaking of this label, Casa Casa Scarpa. It was born in a time. Uh, it was born some twenty years ago, in a time when we already had stainless steel tanks uh, operative in our cellar. Um, Scarpa adopted still in the nineties, early nineties, uh, moving away from cement, which was the case over here. And that was one of the probably biggest changes we ever done because speaking of wood, for, for example, so of the wood in, of the wooden barrels we use for aging, other kind of wines, they have, they have, have not changed. Uh, supply has not changed. There's always Gamba from Castellalcero here in the Asti area. We always had the same size of barrels, 35 to 50 hectolitres made of French oak. Um, but yes, in terms of neutral con con containers, and still it's definitely neutral, cement can be debated if it's neutral or not, because there are actually things that cement does uh, in terms of interaction uh, with the wine. 
but yes, it was still considered new, neutral in those days, and they were changed a certain time uh, in favor of still. Basically, the choice was driven by practicality. Still, is much easier to to use, to work with, basically to keep it clean, of course, because it's 100% clean and always very handy to get your hands on. Although our podcasts focus on the liquid in the glass, every bit as important to its pleasure is how it's stored, presented and served. Tanglewood create the finest cellar spaces. Open the door and you immediately know you are somewhere special. Beautifully crafted, ingeniously organised, every cellar is bespoke, built to showcase wines. The team at Tanglewood are the finest in the industry. Draftsmen and craftsmen working with the best materials and equipment available. And it's not just cellars. Wine fridges, glasses, everything down to the all-important corkscrew. Have a look at tanglewoodwine.co.uk for more or follow them on Instagram at Tanglewood Wine Storage and send a direct message to receive a 10% off code for all wine refrigeration and accessories. Can I ask you a question about, um, about Barbera? Well, I mean, I'm thinking back to my sort of, you know, being early 20s and starting to read wine books. And I guess if I read about um, Bar- uh, Bar- oh, sorry, not Barolo, um, Piedmont in those days, I would have read about this wonderful grape called Nebbiolo. And then I would have been introduced to Bar- Barbera and Dolcetto. It was almost two grapes which um, were more easygoing, were softer. Dolcetta had this sweet softness. Dolcetta, Barbera, maybe a little bit more rusticity, but they still were very much wines that maybe you could afford to drink, that you would bar- you'd have more every day, that you drink in local bars and restaurants. And I just wonder whether, I mean, I, I think I was told that Piedmont now has the highest average vineyard price in the world. I mean, I think Barolo is now six, seven million a Euro, euros a hectare now, which is, you know, more than, more than Champagne. And Burgundy. So, I mean, when you when that happens, is it inevitable that you have to make more serious wines out of the two grapes, which perhaps 20, 30 years ago were actually praised for their simplicity, but now they they sort of have to be more grown up grapes as a result. And I I wonder if maybe Dolcetto that definitely applies to you, but also Barbera, the winemaking has changed a bit because of that, or the kind of price expectation. Does that make sense? You know, I get your point. I think, but that's a, that's a quite complicated question. Um, the way I see it is just probably the other way around, is that um, we had, we as a, speaking not as Scarpa, but as a winemaking uh, community over here, we had to start playing differently and making more serious wines with these two grapes that you mentioned when we realized that people were coming to us from all over uh, uh, the world to visit us and to enjoy our, our, our products, that in the first place was Nebbiolo-based products, so Barolo and Barbaresco, speaking of this area. So the, moment, the very moment that we realized that we were in the middle of something, that we were on stage and people were actually talking about us, they were interested in us, we could not limit ourselves in having something good with one grape. And being other grapes as important as others, but until a certain moment in time, we just didn't realize that. We didn't want to realize that. But when we did, so we, when we decided that we had time, money, energy to spend some more efforts on taking the other grapes if not at the, 
at the same level as the king one, the Biolo, but least as close as possible, uh, we just did. And we started giving importance and attention to those grapes. Yeah. And the result is basically this. Yeah. Is, is there a downside to that, though? Um, I don't know if that's what you were hinting at, Liam, that, um, you know, there was an affordable side to Piemonte, and now there isn't really. That said, you can actually still get a supermarket Barbera for, I don't know. The point. Seven or eight. Say, is it, is it, does it discourage the first time drinker from looking at the region and thinking, oh, you know, I can, I, I, you know, here's something really, really interesting to try here. You know, actually, I, I was, I actually noticed it more in Dolcetto than I noticed it with Barbera. But I used to think of Dolcetto as almost could be fleury like in its light, delicate elegance. It's kind of feminine, you know, freshness. And now when I drink Dolcetto, I get a lot more depth and richness and concentration from the majority that I taste. Now, I might just be missing the point, and there may be lots of those light, feminine, fleury-like Dolcettos on the market, but I, I feel like I don't taste them like I did 20 years ago. I might, I might be wrong. Maybe that's a climate thing, too. Maybe, maybe it's an effect of heat that actually there's more alcohol in the wines, more alcohol in the Dolcettos than there was when you were thinking back to that. I quite, I quite agree with Fiona here as, um, yeah, the climate has played a big role on certain grapes, particularly, and Dolcetto is one, one of them. The other one, very one that probably has changed the uh, uh, most is Grignolino. Um, Grignolino, the name Grignolino comes from the seed that in dialect is Grignola. So it should point to a wine that with a high quantity of tannin. Um, back in the days, years, years ago. Uh, it used to be a very pale, uh, rather easygoing wine with low alcohol con con content, sort of, um, sort of a drink more than a serious wine in terms of easiness. Um, but now it, it has changed de deeply. One of its most dedicated areas is again very close to uh, Castagnole, so close to the uh, area I was talking about. Um, and that's the area of the Grignolino del Monferrato Casalese, where now tem temperatures are very high and they, they give out wines that can reach up to four, 14 uh, degrees. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that, that would have been 12.5. And even color would have been pale pink to what now is the purple. So climate has played a role, yes. Um, and going back to, to, your, to your question, Fiona, about the, the, the effects of, of these wines, uh, Dolcetto or Barbera, let's say that we are still in an ongoing process. Uh, we haven't successfully managed to go from a situation where Barbera and Dolcetto are just bulk, extremely easy wines into something of a premium level. We have, we have still miles and miles uh, uh, to go and to walk. There's so much Barbera planted in this region, and so many liters produced every year, that the array of wines, the, the, the very possibilities you can get out of those liters are immense, there are many. So there's wines from each kind of taste, each kind of possibilities, and you can enjoy very easy, easy going, even cheap uh, Barbera, like as a scarpa might be, or extremely serious uh, Barbera wines like 
Flamboyana, which is on a very different level in all terms. Can I ask a, um, another slightly general question about um, Piedmont and its place in the international market? Because it seems to me that um, maybe two things happened to the advantage of the region. One is that um, Bordeaux became very expensive <laughs> and, and started going to markets like maybe the America and the, and the Far East market, which meant that there was a gap maybe in the UK, maybe in Europe particularly. Um, and Piedmont seemed to fill quite well, quite quickly. You know, it seemed to sort of jump into that gap well, particularly in the restaurant industry in London. I noticed it, obviously. And also, you seem to have a role of, there were some particular individuals who were in the right place at the right time, who were very good at, very good um, market, not marketeers, I guess, great ambassadors for your region and also great winemakers. But I think particular, say, Angelo Gaia or Gio Cosa or whatever, who played a real crucial role at the right place. And I wonder whether, um, I don't know, because I never saw it before, but whether there was a real obvious leap forward, particularly in terms of pricing, but maybe in just terms of general recognition as it being a great, great wine producing region that maybe only happened from 30 years ago to maybe 10 years ago. There was, a, was there a real window of change? Well, you, you certainly men mentioned a name which is crucial for our land, which is Gaia. Uh, all, all kind of credits have to be given to him because he, he's one of the very first to, to go abroad and promote the land it comes from. Uh, but it was years and years ago, as we were talking about probably 50 years ago. Um, and that was not the moment where, when this leap forward was made. Um, as I said, there was probably, uh, say, in the end of the end of the eighties, early nineties, something something new started to happen around here. There's a, there's a short documentary, there's a sort of short 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 film called Barola Boys, uh, which tells the story of a group of uh, producers from the Barolo area. They, they were the first group of organized producers traveling from Italy, from Lange region to the US to promote together as a whole their own products. And uh, Barolo was the wine they were basically showing uh, in those days. They did it in a, in a, in a, in a different way um, compared to what their ancestors have been doing so far. So they, they started making wine in small containers in barrique, moving from the big barrel into the uh, traditional Bordelais barrique. That was a breakthrough that had a smashing success. And for the very first time in history, the name Barolo Lange made it internationally on a larger scale. So it wasn't dedicated to a few tiny group of wine geeks, but it was for larger organs. Those were the days when probably our land started being known and heard of internationally. But for a true leap to be described, I would say that from mid 2000, so 2004, five, six on, onwards, we have been at the center of international tu tourism and has been growing ever since, at least since uh, COVID-19 paid us a visit a few months ago. But, uh, Apart from food too, can't 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 leave food out of this. Uh, food too has been an enormous um, part of that draw. I mean, you know, that's what's one of the things that's brought people into the region. 
And I was really fascinated by these old menus that you sent us, um, uh, which are of, you know, really quite resplendent feasts and the most incredible bit of um, food and wine pairing, um, you know, putting, putting your wines with these very um, traditional dishes. T tell us a bit about how those came to pass and also the most fascinating thing I thought about them about them was that actually all the wines that were matched were red, which just kind of, you know, wouldn't really happen today. So, but tell, tell, us, tell us some, you know, who was behind those menus and, and how the pairings came about. The person behind his menus is the most important person for Scarpa Winery at all. Uh, he's, his name is Mario Pesce. He used to be uh, the manager and the winemaker here at Scarpa for, uh, for a very long, long, long uh, time, from 1948 to 2002. Um, the idea of these menus was basically born out of his complete, true, genuine love for this land, for the land it comes from. And here we go back to the Gaia top topic that we're talking about. So these kind of people were so much in love with the area they uh, come from. They were so convinced of the quality of what they had at hand here in those days that they, that they did everything they could to promote and communicate it. So the menus by Mario Pesce, they are 100% lo lo local, by which I mean everything named in those menus comes from an area no wider than 40 kilometers. Everything, every single, every single dish, every single ingredient, uh, wines, meat, cheeses, vegetables, everything. So the idea is the one of um, taking the attention from outer areas towards you, into your area, into your tiny spot where you are, and to make it as important as possible. Um, the reason why there is no white in the pairing, which is absolutely not normal for our standards nowadays, is that Scarpa has always been a red wine making company. Moscato was the only wine present, and probably it shows in a few in, in, in a few a few menus at the end uh, of the meal to go with some uh, pudding. Um, but yes, this is one wine out of, of, of out of a range of in those days it was about 15, 16 references, but all the, all others were red. And even with the dessert, I'm just looking at one of the menus now. Um, uh, even the peaches are, are the peaches. Red wine, so, um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, I, I mean, I love I love the ingenuity of it. You know, it's just like there, it is. Um, it, it's just there is no dish, you know, including you know the very first dish and and the very last with the dessert, where where red wine isn't present. And it, it makes me realise one of the things I've noticed um, from eating out is that um, how often paired menus now. There may only be one one red wine now um, uh, in 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 a whole menu, a whole pairing menu. Uh, whereas you know here you have these resplendent menus with um, almost like meat from start to finish, except except with cheese or peaches, um, and uh, you know and it's all red. It's just another world really to kind of focus entirely on red wine. I mean, I like it. I think it's fascinating. Uh, Fiona, look at, look at the menus and do you not feel like you'd be very full at the end of all those menus? I mean, they, they, are, they are hearty, those menus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's, 
um, there's probably a couple of things to say about it. Uh, in, in the first place, and that, goes, that takes us back to a previous to topic, the one of climate, even red wines back in those years uh, were very different one from the other. So, for example, Grignolino, that's mentioned there, used to be a 12.5 degree wine, which, which is probably why they didn't feel the urge of having a, a white, because they had a light red, then a medium-bodied red, and then some robust red. Now, that's, that goal is harder to achieve in this area, because even the what used to be light wines, like a Grignolino, now are quite heavy, they're quite budded. So you would end up with a robust budded red from the very beginning to the end, which doesn't actually make too much sense. Um, and also, as you very, very carefully no, 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 noticed, is that there used to be meat from the beginning to the end. Um, of course, our, our, our food habits and our awareness about health related to food has changed profoundly over the past 40, 45 years. And it is unlikely to happen now unless you really want it that uh, you would have red, red meat from the starter to the pudding. Uh, it was much more uh, the case 40 years ago, absolutely. And there are some quite um, uh, fashionable dishes, you know, forage dishes, um, dandelion pie. Uh, I was quite impressed. Yes. Pino de Tarasasco um, and, um, and uh, bitter greens omelette and chart pie. So yes, there were, there were greens. There were, there were greens, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah we have to pick them out of the menu. Now, of course, um, there are some vegetables that are extremely important to our area. You can think of the cardogobbo, the hashback cardoon. Uh, it's a, it's a very nice uh, vegetable. It looks like celery, but it's much more tender and it, uh, it grows on the sandy banks of the river Belbo flowing around here. And it is called hunchback because while it grows, it is buried down in the sand again as, as to prevent it from growing upright. And so it develops a sort of hunch and it's completely pale because it's, it's buried in the sand and you can't get any, any, any sun rays. But it's extremely tender and it usually boiled or can just be ro 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 roasted uh, and pan fried. It's gorgeous as a as a side again with some meat probably. <laughs> I think that's the kind of like ultimate ultimate pairing challenge. I wouldn't like someone to throw at me. What would you pair with a hunchback cartoon? <laughs> now, um, now, I would, now I would know after this conversation. They would know. They would know. And the answer is absolutely. Uh, Barbera Dasti, of course. That goes, that goes very, very well with it. So, Fiona, we're going to Piedmont in October, if we can. I think we should. Or maybe uh, early November, when, when white truffles... Truffles on, exactly. Good, good decision. So, should we taste the Nebbiolo? Yes, let's, let's quickly taste the Nebbiolo. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Nebbiolo, I mean, you call it the king of grapes, but it definitely seems to have that mantle there. I guess the backbone grape variety behind Barolo and Barbaresco, the two kind of mantelpiece um, regions or, uh, of the area. Um, what, what, how would you describe Nebbiolo as a great variety in itself? What's its key characters? Gentleness. Uh, Nebbiolo is absolutely gen gentle and that's probably, as I said, is what made it internationally appraised and gave it the 
fame it has now, gentleness and the, the capability of aging greatly. So over the years, it can really give out tons of tons of flavors, uh, probably more than other grapes. Yeah. Um, there's a saying that that goes that uh, the only un unlucky part in the Nebbiolo life is that Pinot Noir exists, which is probably right. Is that I mean the the other great unmatched grape is is uh, uh, Pinot Noir that over time can can yield tremendous notes, and and Nebbiolo is probably up up uh, to that uh, task. Yeah, there's um, definitely a lot of similarities, isn't there? Both in terms, all, yeah. in terms of the colour it gives, it's, it, it, the way that it changes colour in, in the glass, well, in the bottle with age, and that lovely lifted aromatic portfolio. Yeah, aromatic shades, yeah. Nebbiolo is probably not as, as rich in aromas in a young stage as uh, Pinot is. That's really technicality. Um, it's probably a little bit more rustic, even, of, even in the tannin. But still, there are plenty of places where Nebbiolo can, can be planted or you know, Noir can be planted and have different shades. Speaking of our one here, Nebbiolo d'Alba, by Um we are quite proud of, of this wine because the grapes, they are sought from two different vineyards from two different towns in the Roero area. So we are talking about the northern bank of the river Tanaro. This river flowing through Alba, Asti, Alessandria is extremely important to our part of Piedmont because it goes through, it flows through the most important wine uh, towns in southern Piedmont and really divides areas, especially in Alba, in the Alba region. That is key. You have the southern bank and the northern bank, or as they call it, uh, la gauche droite, uh, la gauche. Um, and so, uh, another one, I don't know it in French. Um, but yes, speaking of the Northern Bank, um, where this wine comes from, you have the entire area which is marked by sand. It's very rich in sand. Um, are, it is quite a, a wide area made of medium-sized hills, uh, very soft, very clear in terms of soil com composition. And the result of that, combined with the Nebbiolo grape, is a wine light in color, very light, light budded, not too much alcohol in it, uh, and gorgeous perfumes. But probably more than the mouth is the nose that is strikingly remarkable in this wine. Very, very gentle, uh, rose, uh, some, some light, delicate flowers, uh, and over time, the, our Nebbiolo d'Alba Brudunota is usually released three years after the harvest. I've had uh, wines of this label as old as 17 years, and they were holding up very, very well. Clearly, they've lost, they have lost some of this freshness, and they've turned into something a bit more earthy and dense. But that's quite right uh, over time. But still, they were vivid, some acidity, but very, very pleasant uh, to drink. And I suppose, I suppose the, um, the thing with Nebbiolo is always managing tannin. It must be forever its biggest. The winemaking hurdle of Nebbiolo must be, must be managing tannin. And I suppose um, for generations that's been managed by time and, you know, time in barrel, time, you know, by waiting. And I guess to agree you still do it. But I, I mean, green tannins are still green and there's nothing green about this. I mean, they're just very um, bitey, grippy, chewy tannins that really hold the wine together beautifully. I, 
I think I think it's lovely. I'm really enjoying it. Fiona, what do you think of this wine? Yeah, it's beautifully sort of supple. Um, you know, supple and it's you know sort of supple, silky, and um, I'm just thinking: is there a general difference between Nebbiolo d'Alba and the Lange Nebbiolos? Would would there be? Um, would would it just be down to a producer or a particular vineyard, or would it be? Would there be a, a general difference between the Nebbiolos from those? At, that, at this level of those two uh, regions? The difference is basically geographical. Uh, and again, it has to do with the river Tanago. Um, if you are in the southern area of this river, so in the Lange area, you would you would apply for a Lange Nebbiolo, which is in our value scale, it is on a lower level than Barolo or Barbaresco. So you make Lange Nebbiolo with, with those grapes not suitable to yielding Barolo or Barbaresco because they are planted basically north or because that vintage is not up to your taste and you don't want to release a, a super premium wine with, with a kind of quality. So you sort of take it down to a lower level and make it out as uh, Lange. If you are in the rare area, you can apply for the Nebbiolo d'Alba appellation where it is not the best one because there is the Roero appellation, it's a DOCG and it is of a higher quality, it's a premium one. Um, but the entire area in Roero is very much rich of sand, as I was saying. And so, on average, all, all grapes coming out of that vineyards are then capable of, of uh, yielding this kind of lightness uh, in the wine. And that's why we like it. It's basically, that's the reason why we have this grape from that area is just to get this kind of lightness and elegance. Mm. Well, I think we should, well, unfortunately, wrap up. I mean, I could carry on discussing these wines and this region for the rest of the day, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. Even in lockdown, there are some <laughs> time constraints. You know what, they're both, both wines, which I love about them both, is that they make me hungry. Mm. That's the time of the day. There is something about the structure and the, and the dryness and that lovely kind of grip that just makes me want to eat particularly protein, meat or cheese. Funnily enough, that's yeah. right. Enough. Well, yes, that's quite, just to end with, that's quite interesting. Um, Scarpa wines, they have always been... So it's a really an, an historical fact. It's always been extremely gastronomical, meant to be drunk and eaten at the same time. You would hardly enjoy, fully enjoy most of our wines just by drinking it alone. Mm. Of course it goes, but they, they play out their best role when matched with food. It mustn't be necessarily that kind of <laughs> extremely many we went through uh, back on, but, uh, can be food of all kinds. Uh, we now love matching some, some of our wines with international cuisine from Asia, sort of the Thai, Chinese, Japanese cuisine. I mean, playing, playing around with food and wine is one of the most uh, fun things to do ever, I think. So it's really, it really gives you space to, uh, for your fantasy to roam freely and widely, but they need some food uh, uh, to go with. Yeah, guess we're not. Well, when, when we're all out of lockdown, we will have to go and put that to the test, I think. Yeah, yeah. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Andrea, Andrea, thank you very much. And I really look forward to seeing you face to face soon. And I'll, um, I'll bring Fiona with me. 
Yeah. So do I. <laughs> Thank you for hosting this. Thank you very much for having me about. And well, congratulations for the podcast anyway. Thank you. Nice Thank you very you. much. You have been listening to Batonage, a wine podcast hosted by Fiona Beckett and Liam Stevenson. For tips on matching food and wine, visit Fiona's website, matchingfoodandwine.com, or to make, buy, or sell wine, check out Liam's company, globalwinesolutions.com or vineyard-productions.com.